Father, you are absolutely amazing. We read your word, and as uh, Ken Ham shared this morning in Sunday school, your knowledge compared to ours is as if we know nothing. And so we dive in and we try to understand limited, uh, sometimes um, twisted, distorted uh, by men, and we just want your truth. And so we ask you to guide us as we look at this um, passage, very familiar passage, uh, but to highlight what it actually says, because that's all we're after. We're not looking for a system. We're not trying to just attack people who believe differently than us, but we don't want to follow what is not in your word. And so um, guide us in this time we have together uh, to please you, uh, to correctly understand, and then to put it into practice, and to... um, eagerly and with great excitement serve you with our lives to the point of our death. Thank you, Father, for your perfect love for us and guide us now in this time for your glory and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3. Some of you maybe have turned there already. Give you a couple moments. I'm, uh, in spite of my title, Dangers of Calvinism, I don't want to dwell on that as much as I want to point out things. What I want to dwell on is what I do every Sunday. It's the Word of God. That's all we're after. We're not, we're not trying to compete with people and um, accept positions that are thrown out there just because somebody that knows more than us said it. Um, if you do that, you're in big trouble these days. And um, so I, I, I get the impression you don't trust your mechanic anymore you don't trust your lawyer anymore. You don't trust your doctor anymore. You don't trust anybody, right? But you do trust your husbands, right, ladies? Oh, okay, that's a good answer. <clears throat> Sometimes. She said always. That, that's what I want to hear. Let me give you a quick summary, though. I told you I don't want to focus on it, but I want to make sure you understand. I did not understand Calvinism about 10 years ago. I thought I was a Calvinist, at least a four and a half point Calvinist because there's five points. And there was one of them that I struggled a little bit with, but I thought I was all of them until uh, it brought, was brought to my attention. We had to interact with it, go to scripture. And I realized, I don't think I'm a Calvinist at all at that time when I was wrestling with it. And um, maybe a half point on the last one, um, because I do believe the saints will persevere, but how it's taught is different. So let me just give you a quick synopsis. They build it off of, people have, I don't know who started this, but they build it off the term TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Makes it easy to kind of remember what Calvinism teaches. But it isn't so easy because as I looked around and tried to study this numerous times, I cannot understand the position. And so because of that, I'm told by people who are Calvinists that I shouldn't teach on it because I don't understand it. But my phrase that I wrote down here is trying to explain Calvinism is like nailing jello to a tree. The target keeps moving and the nail never holds. And so you can say one thing and say, no, that's not it, it's over here. And then as soon as I say that one, somebody else says, that's not it, it's over here. And it just keeps moving around to where I'm not sure any of them even understand what Calvinism is, besides the fact that it was built off of a man. And so as I lay this out, or a number of men, um, I just want to explain total depravity with the question, can all men seek God? And the answer to that is yes. And a number of verses I wrote down. Unconditional election. The question is, can all men be saved? The answer is yes. You'll see that in John 3 today and numerous other passages. 
The third one, limited atonement. Did Christ die for all men? Yes. See how I'm making this all positive? Right? You're doing a good job, right? And the answer is yes. And you get numerous verses that tell you that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Irresistible grace. Can all men freely choose salvation? The answer is yes. Numerous passages reveal that. Number of places that, that God says he's not willing that any should perish. He desires all men to be saved. That is his will. So for you to come up with something that says otherwise, you've got serious problems. And the last one, the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Are all believers eternally saved? Yes. You cannot lose what God has given to you. You are changed forever as you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. So I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm working on a packet, Lord willing. I will try to have it ready by next Sunday, but there's so much going on between the camp out this weekend and the 4th of July next weekend and a lot of extra things happening in our lives. If I don't get it done, then I'll, I will keep working on it and I will hand it out to you. But I will say this. I've preached on this more from the Calvinism standpoint in times past, I don't remember how far back that goes. Somebody looked at it recently. But there are sermons on the website from the church about Calvinism, and you can go in there and you can um, look those up, follow those. I try to deal with it more specifically and more biblically as far as why it is a problem, because it is a big problem. There are serious dangers here. Calvinism to me, and this is where I will start getting in trouble, Calvinism is dangerous. Now, you may think you're a Calvinist, but I would encourage you to do like I did 10 years ago, and that is go figure out what this really saying. And I can give you some books, um, books that have debates, so you hear both sides, and then some books by individuals that kind of want to present things. I don't hand out books very often, if you haven't noticed. I hand out the book, and I try to get you to understand what the book says, what God says. So as you're looking at this struggle here, this Calvinism versus Arminianism is not the issue. Because when you go look at Arminianism, you find the same thing. It varies according to who you talk to. And Jacob Arminius, on the letter P, Perseverance of the Saints, testifies in his own handwriting, his own book, that he did not believe you could lose your salvation. So it's pretty amazing that you would come up with a system that says you can't lose it, Calvinist, you can lose it, Arminianist, or however you want to put that out there, and yet he didn't even believe that. So when you go to man and you try to create a systematic system of belief based on men, you got a serious problem. So what do I encourage you to do all the time? Read your Bibles. When you run into a problem with your Bibles, go figure out what the Bible is saying, not what somebody tells you about it, which is why even study Bibles can be really dangerous. Go find out what the Bible's saying about it. How do I do that? Come to Wednesday night Bible study. We'll teach you how to get into the Word for yourself. That is a very small number, many weeks, compared to the church as a whole. I don't know why people don't want to know more for themselves, why they don't want to study more. And I know what all the excuses are of why they don't come, and that's all they are. I was taught in seminary that an excuse is a reason stuffed with a lie. All right? So stop making excuses to God. Take seriously what he's showing you around our country. We've talked with in recent days what's coming and get ready instead of just fumbling around. And I don't mean ready to have a good food supply and, a, and a, plenty of weapons and ammunition. I mean ready so that you're equipped to give answers to people and share the gospel so that when they're in crisis, they can come to Christ because you're not afraid of dying. Talk about that a little bit. And you're ready to tell them how they can know Jesus Christ as their own personal Lord and Savior. What would you tell them today? 
Where would you start? What verses would you use? Do you have them memorized? Ah, bah, bah, bah. If Fred went to a fire call that way and knew nothing, they just pulled him off the street, they put a uniform on him, and they taught him how to drive the truck or the ambulance or whatever he's driving, and he shows up. What good is Fred? He's almost as good as your doctor, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm going back to what I said earlier. There's a lot of good doctors out there. But how's he going to help you? He's going to be learning on-the-job training right there. And when you tell him it hurts, he's going to go, I don't know what part of the body that is. I don't know what organs are in there. And they start fumbling. That's what too many Christians are doing today when it comes to sharing the gospel. They say, go talk to the pastor. Or go talk to so-and-so. They know a lot more than me. Don't ever pass them on. If you want to grow and learn, it's like trying to learn how to ride a bike and you always put somebody else on it. You never get on the bike. You're never going to learn how to ride a bike. So go out there and make a fool of yourself. The preaching of the gospel is, uh oh, foolishness. Read your Bibles. I'm serious. You got to take me serious. It's real, and this is real. And so as I go in here and I'm interacting with you, I'm not trying to pick on Calvinists. I want to treat them as I would treat anybody else that I'm going to share with. Take them to the Word, show them what it says. And at the moment they take you to an author and they tell you, they quote what he said, don't allow it. Kind of like what we saw in Sunday school this morning. Don't start fighting on their terms. Don't go to man's word, man's explanations, man's ideas. There is so much in Scripture that is so simple that there's too many intellectuals that are missing the whole point. They're creating something outside of what the Bible is actually saying. So let's go look at it, right? That's what we're after here this morning. The first section, verses 1 to 8. And forgive me if I cover some of this too rapidly, or if you feel like I'm taking too long. Um, I Hopefully you brought a lunch as the little boy with the loaves and fishes came prepared. But as you look at verses 1 to 8, it reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night, came to who? Jesus in the context, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wham! goes right for the juggler vein. This whole passage here to me is like a chess game. It's a chess match. And Nicodemus moves, and then Jesus moves, and Nicodemus moves, and Jesus moves. And he's throwing him for a loop because he's supposed to be the master chess player. What's he call him up there? A man of the Pharisees? Oh, you're one of those. There are only a few thousand in Israel. You're... Um, his name Nicodemus, which is just victor over the people, is a common name. But he says, you're a, a ruler of the Jews? Man, you've been around a while. You not only know how to drive the truck and wear the uniform, you know what to do when you show up at the, at the site of the crime or the, of the accident or whatever it may have been. And so he's trying to lay this out for him. And, and the, as a writer of John puts this out, and he, he says he comes to Jesus by night. So as he backs up here, the Pharisees were separated ones. You, you need to understand this picture here. They were zealous for the law as a way to get to God. That is an important point. He thought by keeping the law, by being separated from sin, from all the bad stuff in society, that's how you earned your way. 
That was his first big mistake. So he's externally religious, showy. Jesus referred to them as being hypocritical, very fleshly. They, they stand on street corners and pray. They wear long robes. They, they did all this stuff that Matthew 23 explains to you was not good at all. It's all phony. It's all on the outside. Too many people claim to know Christ today, and that's what they look like. But the point he makes of him is here, he's a ruler of the Jews. They believe that this is a reference to the Sanhedrin. This is a Jewish ruling council. They had power, they had dignity. But when you look at the Sanhedrin, it's dominated by what group? The Sadducees. They were the dominant party with the Sanhedrin. Some Pharisees, mostly Sadducees. So what's interesting when he brings this up that he is a ruler of the Jews, he's, he's in this capacity, but he's, he's in a different role. Because the Sadducees, remember how we said they were so Sadducee? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels. They took the scriptures very lightly, very loosely. They have this own little system. That's not how the Pharisees handle it. So here you have Pharisee meeting with Jesus at night, and he's a very accomplished, mentally, intellectually understanding of the scriptures. He's devoted his life to it. And when you set that up here, you realize how he's coming in. This is a problem to me with a lot of issues on Calvinism. You get a lot of people coming into this with baggage. And it fits well with their baggage, with whatever their background was. They absorb in well all of the do's and don'ts and the legalistic standards that it sets up for being saved and not. Some are coming out as boldly today as to say, if you don't believe in the tulip, which is referred to as the doctrines of grace, as if there's only five of them. They've made up another whole system. Some are saying, potentially, you're not even saved. Now, as soon as I say that, I get a whole bunch of them saying, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. But I've read a number of people, and I don't want to start getting into names, and have seen it with my own eyeballs, where they stand with this. But here's Nicodemus. So he comes in fully prepared. Intellectually, he's got the scriptures down. He lives it out, at least when he's in front of people. Because he's a hypocrite, just like the rest of them. You can't walk spiritually in the flesh. The, the two don't go together. And this is who Nicodemus is at this point in time. So he says here that he came by night. And so the questions are abound. Um, was he proud? Did he, was he trying to make sure nobody saw him? Um, maybe he was embarrassed along with that line and, and didn't want to connect it. But maybe more likely he was just busy. If you remember the Sanhedrin, it took up your day. So much to do. So many people coming to you. So many rulings that had to go on regularly. And, and maybe along with that busyness, they also wanted privacy. Um, uh, going blank with my words here. Paul used that idea in Galatians 2 too. And again, this is where I want to take four hours, but I can't. But I want you to see that I'm not trying to make up stuff. Galatians 2 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up, I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in, you're looking up these verses, make sure I'm quoting them correctly, right? I did so in private to those who were of reputation. What's going on here between Nicodemus and Jesus? They wanted a private conversation. They didn't want the public to see something come out that either I don't know or him to make a fool out of me or whatever it may have been, but he did so in private for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. This is kind of the picture of the Jewish culture. So I think it was an up and up meeting. I think they're getting together here, come together by night because Jesus was also super busy during the day, but he makes time for Nicodemus. So here they are coming together in this um, 
evening meeting. And Nicodemus says to him, Rabbi, which really means master. Many want to translate it over to teacher, but it's, it's a greeting of respect. And he uses a little word, plural. What's he say there? We know. What's the form of know? Form of oida is just mental knowledge. Mentally, we understand mentally what? That you, Jesus, have come from God as a teacher. Whoa, what is Nicodemus saying? He's elevating him pretty high. He ultimately believes, and so we don't know where he's at at this point, but he's at least open. He's not coming in attacking him like many of the others. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, whoever it was, they came after him. That's not how Nicodemus is approaching him. And he gives a reason. He says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You back up into John, and, and you recognize that these signs have been performed um, in chapter 2. And if I can find him here, I lost my... Okay, verse 11. He says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. But there was a second one, and for some reason, there it is, verse 23 he says also in John 2, 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. So there were signs occurring up to this point, and Nicodemus simply says, I've been watching. I've been taking that in. Now stop for a second. Let me bring the Calvinism back in. Who is Nicodemus at this point? Believer or unbeliever? He's an unbeliever. What's he noticing? Signs. I'm not looking for secrets, you know, I'm not trying to embarrass you. He's just noticing signs. What are those signs? They are works or marks, proof, evidence of miraculous supernatural deeds. Nicodemus isn't fighting them. He's almost gets the impression he's keeping track of them. And he finally comes to him because there's enough, at least in the plural here, and he says that. You're doing these signs because God must be with you. Isn't that what the signs were for? We're going to go into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, after next week, Lord willing, that I don't have to stretch this out for a month because I left you all lost, figuratively speaking. But we're going to look into that, and we're going to go into these spiritual gifts and into the, the whole issue of what's going on there and what the signs are for. And when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, he tells you what tongues were for. And they're abused and they're misused, and we're going to take more time there. But they were assigned to unbelieving Jews. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, 21, 22. They were to get their attention. They were a miraculous occurrence that was taking place, that you were speaking a language you never learned, even a dialect that you had never learned on the day of Pentecost, supernatural. They got the Jews' attention. They all come in, and then they're listening. The message was not in tongues, if you go back to Acts 2. The message was Peter just speaking normal. But the sign got them to come in and pay attention to what Peter was trying to say. So here they're all interacting. Here's a Jew who saw the sign, and it's convicting him. It's drawing him in of this particular type of signs. Calvinism would say that an unbeliever is spiritually dead. And you have to go into a variety of definitions of what they mean by that. But many of them, again, I'm, I'm not trying to put words in their mouths, many of them, as I've been reading, will tell you that they cannot process this information right here that Nicodemus is processing. It's impossible. They're dead. You ever talk to a dead person? 
You shouldn't. At least not for very long. First, you have to know they're dead. Once you figure that out and you keep talking to them, then it's using more of an emotional, relational thing that you're, you're struggling with to let go. And that, that, that part's okay too. But if you're still doing it five or 10 years later, don't come talking to me. I, I can't help you. Sorry, I'm just trying to be funny. You're all being too serious. That we're, we're, we're not trying to make this the end of the world here. We're just trying to get you to look at what the passage is saying. Here is Jesus coming in as a master teacher, and he is greeted with respect from Nicodemus, and Nicodemus sets him up right up front. He praises him, he highlights him, he lifts him up, and he says, I understand. I'm not spiritually dead in the sense of what is typically taught. And so look what Jesus does. He doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't have. And kind of kick his heels and go, I'm embarrassed that you're making such a big, big deal over me. Isn't that what we do when someone draws too much attention? Praises you? It's not what he does. He goes for the juggler vein. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, first time he answers, and said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just right to the heart of the matter, right to the point. Look, we have a short meeting. Jesus isn't like many of us preachers. He doesn't have to drag it out for four hours. He can just make the point real easily. Someday we may be more like him that way. But you back up a second. Look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you come from God. Who's the we? Who do you think he's interacting with? that he's discussing this with? Other Pharisees. What do you find when you go through the scriptures? You find some Pharisees coming to Christ down the road, especially the book of Acts. They mention different ones that believed. So they're not missing the whole point, and neither are whoever the we is dead mentally. They're able to hear, they're able to recognize, and they have to make a decision, which ultimately Nicodemus is going to come up to. But you're going to see another we in a moment. This we, I think, is just a focus on maybe those close leaders that are around him. It doesn't explain it real well, but it's pointed out here. And then when you look at that, um, that we know, it's also a perfect tense. And this is where, again, I'm finding a lot of Calvinism is very superficial. Again, I'm going to get in trouble for that too. They don't really go into what the text is trying to explain. The perfect tense means here... Past action, present results. That's all it means in the Greek. You don't have to memorize all that or know all about that. But what he's saying is, we know, he says, we have known for a while and we continue to know. We've been watching and building up and and now the evidence is still just as clear. Nothing's changed. Here we stand. That you have come from God. You have a divine mission. What's the purpose of the gospel of John? You should have this one down at least to know where to look for it. Chapter... 20 verses 30 and 31. If you look back to that for a moment, he tells you at the end of his writing, John 20, 30 and 31, many other signs. There it is again. All through the book of John, there's, there's seven of them. But many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, who many of whom weren't saved. They come to Christ along the way, including Thomas after his resurrection. So you're, you think, well, he calls them and they're all saved instantaneously. No, they, many of them struggled. They actually tried to get him out. I think it's Matthew 13, but I, I probably have it mixed up and, and say that he's a little bit loony. We got to take him away from all of this. But look at he's saying here in verse 30. 
he performed them in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. And what's the purpose? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that word mean? That's Greek. The Messiah. That's what John's written for. Who's the focus then at that point? Who's looking for a Messiah? The Jews. The book is commonly presented as written to the world for all peoples, but he's zeroing in on the Jews because through them, all the nations are going to be blessed. They were the ones who were supposed to carry that message. And so he says that believing you may have life in his name. That's what John was written for. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening in the life of Nicodemus. He's basically admitting to them right here, you have come from God, is he's almost saying, are you the Messiah or you are the Messiah? Nobody can do the works you're doing if he's not from God. When's the last time they saw somebody doing these works? Like, never. John the Baptist didn't go around doing them. 400 silent years before that, the prophets in the Old Testament, you don't find them working this miraculous sign. You see Elijah and Elijah doing some things and it has a reason for why that was happening way on back. But this is new. And they're seeing it with their own eyeballs. And he says that Jesus answers that to him. And he says, truly, truly. And he repeats that three times in his answers. Why would you repeat those words? I know you all studied this. You have oodles of information you can share with us. And I don't want the same person answering every time, but who has, a, who has an idea? Truly, truly. Emphasis. Really trying to make a point and what? Pay attention because this is important. All right? So the emphasis here is on the repetition of what he's bringing in. There's certainty to what he's going to say and the importance to what he's going to say. And he says to them, unless one is born again. Now, you're looking at that and saying, oh, man, you just threw Nicodemus a curveball. He's never heard of that before. Oh, really? Jesus goes on to speak here. If you look up, we'll get to it eventually. But he uses a little term we, and I didn't mark these very well. Was that all the way to verse 11? No, yeah, verse 11. When Jesus answers the third time, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. Oida. Factual information that we have. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the, the we there is the recognition that Nicodemus should have known. What should he have known? And we'll deal with that a little more. But he knew what born again meant. Typically in the Jewish concept, the understanding there was to be born again was to go from being a Gentile to being a Jew. That's a new birth. Makes sense, doesn't it? You're lost, dead, you're in the darkness, you're a dog. But if you transform and you proselytize and you come in and submit to the Jewish system and the customs, and then they're going to tell you that's how you're going to get saved and it wasn't by works, then you were born again. That wasn't a new idea to Nicodemus. What's new to him? What's the problem with Jesus using it that way right here? Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless... One, it's an indefinite pronoun. Someone, anyone, this again goes against what Calvinism teaches, but it's trying to tell you unless anyone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again here, he's talking to a Jew. Nicodemus looks at it and he goes, what are you talking about? So he goes, you surely can't be talking to me. You must be talking about something else and where does he go to? Natural birth. He goes, you, you got to be coming up with some other idea that I've never heard before because this doesn't make any sense. But he says, unless one is born again, 
This whole picture of being born spiritually, verses five and six bring that out, brought forth into new life, not Gentile to Jew, but sinner to saved, just to put it that way, sinner to saint. And so he says you cannot see. Another big crux Calvinists fall into. You cannot see the kingdom of God. They think the kingdom of God is God's sovereignty where he is controlling everything and everybody. Don't, don't get lost in what I'm sharing here. But God comes in, he says, saving you, not saving you. Saving you, not saving you. That's how God is sovereign. That is not a biblical definition of sovereignty anywhere. All sovereignty is is that God rules. God is reigning. Who's he reigning over today? Is he? Why is the world so bad? What's, let me give you this example to correct that a little bit. When, when the millennium comes, that first thousand years, even though we're going to live forever and ever, what's Christ going to be doing? Reigning. Will he be sovereign? Yes. But now he's physically reigning on earth. And what happens on planet earth? What, what takes over the planet? What is it? Sin. Not sin. Jesus is reigning in the millennium. What takes over the planet? Righteousness and Peace are two things that really get stood out with the prophets. Well, what's the difference between then and now? Why don't we have righteousness on the earth? Because Christ isn't reigning. He isn't reigning in the way he will when he returns. Is God still sovereign? Yes. God still has a kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom today? You don't walk into the new Jerusalem like you will then. It is a spiritual relationship. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you enter into that relationship. It's in the heart. And then it will be physically on planet Earth. And so stop and ask yourself again another question. This is where I don't have enough time. When Christ is reigning on Earth, will sin disappear? No. Even though he's sovereign, even though he's physically there, even though righteousness is dominating and peace is dominating, what happens at the end of the thousand years according to Revelation 20? Satan's loosed. He gathers together people like the sand of the sea. You can't even number them. You can't even keep track of how many there are. And what do they choose to do? Gather together against the new Jerusalem and against God ultimately. And they don't last very long. That's the old Godzilla meets Bambi commercial or little cartoon that we talked about. It's like squished. Not drug out. Not like the 70th week of Daniel, not like the Great Tribulation, which is not God, but not like the Day of the Lord, which is God. Those things, we were afraid of all that, but he takes time there. He will not take time in the end, but he's still sovereign. Why is the earth, why is he letting people still get away with stuff? Well, because they aren't doing it out, out front of everybody. It's still there. He knows their hearts. He knows where they really come from. And he's not forcing his will on man. Now, I, that brings you back to the point. I know you won't catch all of this. But Calvinism believes with this total depravity that God says, you can't do anything for yourself. I have to do it for you. And so some Calvinists, I'll leave it general, and some major Calvinists teach that being born again is done by God only. You have nothing to do with being born again. And once you're born again, and the idea of regenerated with this new birth, then he gives you faith to believe. And now you're set up because you have the, not the opportunity, you will believe. See, if he picks you, this is Calvinism, sorry, it isn't maybe in what you've been taught. But if he picks you, you cannot resist. 
Irresistible grace. Remember that little word down in there in tulip? My bursting bubbles. He picks some, and in some views, double predestination. He predestinates some to eternal life, and he predestinates others to eternal hell. Other Calvinists say, oh, no, 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 no. We believe that he elects or he predestines these people, and we'll talk more about this next week, to life, but, but he, didn't, he didn't tell the rest of them they had to go to hell. Does that make sense to you? If he only picks one group, if I took three or four of you and said, I'm taking you to Hawaii with me next week, what happens to the rest of you? Well, if you can, you, yeah, you buy your own ticket or, or you don't go. And this is the idea that's coming out here. He's talking to an unregenerated man. He's telling the unregenerated man, you must be born again. Well, then why don't you just do it to me? Presto changeo. Kind of like him hand brought up this morning. Why did he make them roll the stone away from the tomb? Because that they could do. They could take part of that. It's what parents should be doing with their children. Never do for them what they can do for themselves. Now I'm back on my whole children's. And yet it dominates America today. Spoiling the living daylights out of them. God doesn't do that. You roll the stone away. Now you can't raise Lazarus from the dead. That's beyond you. I'll take care of that. This is how God works with us. And, and so as he's coming in with Nicodemus, he's laying this out to a man who's not mentally dead, who can understand the consequence or the responsibility he has here. And he says to him, unless anyone opens it up to the world, is born again, brought forth with new life, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they go, well, so the idea of see here is what it is. It, and I'm not even sure how to explain that. But they get into this whole idea. All the word see here is trying to bring out is that you cannot experience. I'll put the simple one up front. Vine's Expository Dictionary, page 59. The word behold is horao. It's a form of this word. He shows you how it can be used to um, be allowed or permitted to behold, to be admitted to witness. You cannot experience the kingdom of God. That's all he's talking about. If, if you go to Disneyland, do you go there with your eyes closed or put a blinder on? Is that how you enjoy Disneyland? Maybe on Space Mountain, because you can't see very well anyway? No. You want to see everything. You want to take in all the sights and sounds that are laid out there. And this is all he's getting at. Unless one is born again, he cannot see or experience the kingdom of God. Which kingdom is he talking about? Both. If I come to Christ and I'm changed on the inside spiritually, then one day soon when Christ returns, I will see his physical kingdom set up on earth, and I will reign with him. So he's laying out the whole idea here that you're unable to witness that or to experience that. And so Nicodemus answers, obviously, I'm barely getting through this and I'm in trouble. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus struggles with this concept. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so he asks a simple question, and he's laying out the whole issue here. It's impossible. How can a man passive be allowed or permitted to be born when he's old, when he's elderly. It implies gray-headed. How old do you think Nicodemus was? What's it take to become a ruler of the Jews? 21? 31? 41? Yeah, they wouldn't even start with some of their leadership. He's implying with this that he's gray-headed. This is what he's trying to bring up because he's trying to say to them, how can I go back? I'm an old man. And he uses a different word and says he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, question mark. Is there something wrong with Nicodemus? Would your mother agree to that? Mom, 
I need to be born again. What? Now, how can I get me inside of you? I could eat you a little bit at a time. That's the only way it's going to happen, son. You ain't going back. But Nicodemus asks the question, isn't that kind of foolish? Is, is he trying to kind of bait him a little bit or, or try to say, look, this is kind of stupid, so let me ask, it, let me ask a stupid question. No, I don't think he's mocking. He doesn't approach that way. And yes, I'd love to have an interactive sermon, but I'll never get done if I do that. Those are my favorites. So if I say something that doesn't make any sense, please let me know. But as he goes in here, he says, you can't go in. You can't take possession of. You can't enjoy and live in this new kingdom. You can't go in and out is what, is what the word implies there. Now he's back to more to the physical idea of this kingdom that one day you will enter into. The kingdom with Christ on earth that we found out Wednesday night lasts forever and ever and ever. So, I've barely got anywhere, but he's laid this out. He goes with perspective that he's sharing with Nicodemus, and then this perplexity that Nicodemus has. And Jesus has to say to him, as he struggles with this whole issue, in verse 4, um, and, and moves on, I'm sorry, to the next section here. But he moves on with the idea of do not marvel. That's what I put in your outline just to kind of grab that. Nicodemus is wrestling with this. It makes no sense to him. Who's in charge of the conversation? Jesus. He's always in charge of the conversation. There isn't a conversation in the Bible that he's not running it. And so what's he doing with Nicodemus here? Nicodemus thinks, I've arrived. I'm a ruler of Israel. I'm an old man that is highly respected, probably on the Sanhedrin. What more could I get? What, what more other level? And Jesus basically says to him, you have to start over. No way. Think about your job. Would you like to go back and be a, a grunt in whatever it was? Maybe a, a, not even a private first class because you don't start that way in the military branches. Start over in whatever the job is that you put 30, 40, 50 years into. And you remember all the pains and ups and downs and the people you had to deal with. And you always knew more than they did. But you had to put up with it. Is that what you, no, that's kind of what he's struggling with here. I, I, and he brings up the whole idea here of dunatai. It's impossible. I can't do that. I'm unable. I'm not permitted to go back in. So now what am I going to do? Because I believe what you just said, but it's not making sense to me. So Jesus answers second time, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and there's no definite article, so hopefully your Bible's translated it correctly, born of water and spirit, small s, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You got a problem, Nicodemus. He's setting him up. He's kind of just stepping on him, mashing him down in a, in a mental man-to-man -man kind of conversation or making him feel like, uh, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. You realize this is the only way to save somebody when you go out to rescue them and they're drowning? You wait till it is hopeless. Do not grab on to a person who is flailing about because what will they do when you get there? They will grab onto you and they will take you down. And so they tell them, you just want to time it right to where they've given up and you can grab them gently by the neck. Maybe they have all new methods now, but the way they taught us. And you can just kind of dog paddle or whatever that side stroke is and take them back to land. What's Jesus doing with Nicodemus? He thought he was a world-class swimmer. He thought he had won a gold medal in the Olympics. And now you're telling me 
I don't know how to swim. And so he tries to explain to him here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What does it mean to be born of water? Physical birth. That's all it is. Now, don't go into all the in and outs, amniotic fluid. He's just talking about a common term they would have understood, and he's explaining it right there in the context. That which is born of the flesh, physical birth, is really what he's trying to focus on. Um, natural birth, it's limited, it's temporal, it's earthly. He said, but that which is born of the flesh is flesh, perfect tense. That which has been born and continues to live is flesh. And then he says, that which is born, same Greek word, perfect tense, has been born of the spirit, continues to live, is spirit. Now here you get definite articles in front of flesh, the natural way, and the spirit. Who works with us in John 16 to bring us to Christ? Dum, 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 da, dum, dum, dum. John 16, verses 8 to 11. We're reading our Bibles. It's the Holy Spirit. Convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's definitely involved there, but he doesn't do it to you when you're a corpse. That's the whole thing they're trying to insert in here. Nicodemus is not a corpse. He's understanding the truth that's being shared with him. He's trying to understand parts of it that don't make any sense to him. And he's working along the process and he's setting him up. And what does he ultimately do? He's one of two individuals that took the body of Jesus. Went and asked permission, Joseph of Arimathea. They buried him because they had money. It wasn't a cheap thing to bury somebody. Joseph gave him his tomb. Jesus had nothing. Very, very little on what he had they gambled for at the crucifixion. God will take care of you the same way. Aren't you a child of God? Haven't you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Not because you were mentally dead and God forced it on you, but because you recognized your need, that you were a sinner, and you chose to receive that free gift. This is what he gets into here. I'm going to race through the last part, so you're going to have to pick it up really fast. But the second part is it's the spirit who God works with to give you birth, but it's a spirit birth. It's a um, spiritual, I guess if I were to put a word in there. It carries the idea more of a supernatural birth. It's unlimited. It's eternal. It's heavenly. But it's not because you couldn't do anything for yourself. If that's the case, and again, you're reading your Bibles all the time, I can tell. And you come after individual after individual after individual in Scripture. Cain. What did God do with Cain? Who, who approached Cain? Was it Adam and Eve that came after him with sticks? And throwing rocks at him? How dare you kill your brother? It was God. I thought God couldn't have anything to do with sin. And that's another teaching that's kind of loose out there. Satan himself comes into his presence in Job 1 and 2. There's a lot of stuff that's being taught to people because they aren't reading their Bibles. They're listening to preachers only. But he went to Cain, and he tells Cain to do what? Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to... Are you looking it up? I know. Well, you need to look it up. I don't know what translation that is, and I don't recognize it, but you want to make sure it's saying what it says. Don't look at me. Where are your Bibles? I'm, I'm an old man. I don't have that much longer. I'm going to start getting really forceful. You've got to get into the word of God. What's he say? Sin is crouching at the door. His desire is to... Okay. And what's the word you use there? 
Okay, it's for you. That's one translation you could use. I'm not saying yours was bad. I just didn't recognize it. But, but he started it. You must master it. Who's he talking to? A believer? No. If you don't recognize Cain's not a believer, go read the New Testament. Get your concordance to look up Cain, and you realize he didn't make it. But God tells him, mentally, that he has a responsibility to do something about his sin. If you're dead as a corpse, you can't do that. And you can go through the scriptures and see that over and over and over again. He fades out as far as talking audibly with people, but it takes a long time. I'm just going from the scriptures. I don't read systematic theologies. I don't even like reading books by people that are explaining the position I believe in and the one I don't. But I do to get information so I can go back to scripture. I want to know what they're saying. And then when I oftentimes look it up, I realize they missed it. They totally missed it. Calvinism is floating around here up in the cloud somewhere. The salvation that God's offer is for the common man. You don't have to be intellectual. You don't have to have all the great scholars to read from to figure out what to believe. It's sitting right there. He's talking to Nicodemus, and he takes him from these lofty heights of being super intellectual and the top of his class, and he brings them down, and he says, now we're going to break you until you recognize your need. Then I can work with you. Then I can rescue you. So look what he says to him. Do not marvel, Nicodemus, in verse 7. Who knows where I am in my outline, but it's uh, 1B2. But he says, do not marvel. Stop being astonished, is what he's trying to stress to him. You see that? Stop um, having being filled with wonder and just this curiosity. He goes, I just can't get over this. I can't get over this. Do not marvel. Don't focus on that, Nicodemus. That I said to you, you must be born again. And then he explains, he gives him an illustration that's going to kind of bring this up for him, to lay it out. He says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is he trying to talk about there? When he says the wind blows where it wishes, who's in control of the wind? Ultimately, God. And then he sets up natural occurrences on earth, the jet stream and all these different things that, that dictate what it's doing on a regular basis. It, it, it runs. I'm not saying God is a deist and he's not involved, but it, it's a process there. So he says the wind blows wherever it wishes. And he mentions here, you hear the sound of it, kind of the effect or what comes out of that, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Perfect tenses. You don't know, Oda, you don't have the slightest idea, Nicodemus. You don't have that kind of knowledge in your head. And he said, but as you look at that picture there, you can't control the wind. You don't know. You hear it or you see maybe some effects of blowing the leaves, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. That's the same thing the Holy Spirit does when he's working on individuals. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. He's trying to bring out here that and it is the Spirit here. It's the Holy Spirit. It's how he's working. And he's trying to help him to do, recognize that that's how you get born again. Not forced on you. This is the problem with Calvinism. It's not that God comes along and says, you have to do this. Or I actually, to better explain it, I'm doing it for you, then I will give you faith as a gift, and then you can start growing as a Christian. But it's irresistible. That is not what the Bible teaches. You have a responsibility. You are a sinner prior to knowing Jesus Christ. You will stand condemned. And the Holy Spirit can't convict that if you're spiritually dead in some way that they describe 
How does he convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? They're dead. Ephesians 2, verse 2. Am I making any sense with this? I'm just trying to go back to the simplicity of what the Bible's saying here. And you, I cannot spend an hour or two on each one of these and explain to you what the complications are and why this is so dangerous. But it is. It's getting you sidetracked from your responsibilities, sidetracked from the truth of what God teaches, and totally focus on some man who wrote some book about Calvinism, and it tells you how TULIP works, and just line up. Read your Bibles. Never depend upon anybody else to tell you the truth. You are to rightly divide it. Where's that found? 1 Timothy 2, 15. Folks, it's, it's rather obvious to me, because some of you I've known for many years. You're not taking God seriously. Send me cards and letters, it's okay. Shoot me as I walk out to my car. Just don't let me land on the blacktop. That, I don't want to cook. But I have a responsibility. What does a shepherd do with his sheep? Please, sheep, come back. Sheep, sheep. They lead their sheep. They go after their sheep. Even when only one is lost, they leave the 99 in the fold where they're safe and they hunt down the other sheep. And when they get them, they beat them to death. Right? They may have to do something more severe if it's the second, third time this has happened. Why are they doing that? Why do you spank your children? You're doing it for the same reason. You have to teach them the dangers that are out there. And God is doing the same thing with us as believers, but he doesn't force it on us. I will deal more with this next week in some ways, and hopefully the packet will. But I wanted you to get the idea in here. Now, they're coming up with some new names, and I don't know all of them. I'm starting to catch up with this. They don't want to call it Calvinism anymore. Have you noticed they're doing that with critical race theory? That one's already going out the window, and they're coming up with new names. That is a sign of who at work? Satan. When I started interacting with Jehovah's Witness, well, with Mormons, really, in the 80s, and they started using terms like Christian, salvation, and I've been doing it long enough to realize, where did you come up? Where you? And I realized that's Satan does. Living together, there's no adultery. And you can go through all of them. Same sex, marriage. They try to lighten it up instead of telling you what it really is. That's what Satan's doing with this. And again, I may get cards and letters. Satan is using Calvinism to distract people from the truth. (gasps) My name is Mud. I don't care. I'm a shepherd who's responsible to protect the sheep. And when you read your Bible and you go down through here and he's going to keep going, Nicodemus answers him in verse 9. He said to him, how can these things be? Again, he's still struggling. How can this even be possible? And so Jesus answers, third time, verse 10. He said to him, are you the teacher? He's not calling him a ruler, as he did earlier. Now he says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Are you the outstanding instructor? Are you the one Pharisee in the Sanhedrin? Because the Sadducees weren't into all that kind of stuff. It was the Pharisees that were into the books and into the legalism and into the rights and wrongs and how you earn your way to salvation. That's not where the Sadducees were. So you expect him to be one of the smaller numbers in the Sanhedrin that was able to lead other people. And he stands out. He even knew exactly as Jesus interacts with him, you're the teacher. You're the outstanding instructor 
and you don't understand, you don't gnosko, you don't recognize these things experientially? What things? I don't have time, but I'm going to give you a couple of references you can look them up for yourself. Psalm 51, verses 10, 16, and 17. He tells them there they need a new heart. Ezekiel 11, 19, same idea. I'll say it one more time after I come back. Ezekiel 36, 26. Isaiah 32, 15. Joel 2, 28 and 29 are what he's going to ultimately do down the road. Give them to you one more time. Psalm 51, 10, 16, 17. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. Ezekiel 36, 26. Isaiah 32, 15. Joel 2, 28 and 29. Nicodemus should have known. Correction? You still can't write them. Psalm, you got Psalm. And verses 16 and 17, just scribble them. Don't make them look nice. That's the first thing you learn in school. Just make them readable to you. When people give me their notes in school, I'm letting people write it down. Isaiah 51, 10, 16, 17. I could hardly read some of the notes. They could read them. Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, just put EZ. 11, 15. What's that? Oh, I said it wrong? Okay, I, 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 Psalm 51, 10, 16, 17. I thought you maybe already had that one done. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. Ezekiel, same book, just right, right behind it, 36, 26. <laughs> Got to get a fast pen. Isaiah 32, 15. I could have read these by now, probably. And the last one, Isaiah 32, 15, and then Joel only has three chapters, so it's chapter 2, right in the middle, verses 28 and 29. Joel 2, 28 and 29. As he brings up some of these, just some examples, Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, should have known about needing a new heart. Should have known about something having to happen to be born again, regenerated. From above is kind of the emphasis coming out from that. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You haven't experienced this. You're at this level of knowledge and you don't know it personally. That's what Gnosko brings up. This isn't real. You, you, it isn't the rubber meeting the road. You're not practicing this in your life. This is where he's trying to get Nicodemus because he knows too much, but he doesn't know God. So he says in verse 11, truly, truly, remember that one? Emphasis, importance, certainty. Truly, truly, I say to you, and here he does it again with a plural. We speak that which we know. Now, in that context, when you recognize that he's a teacher of Israel, that these things are taught in the Old Testament, you realize there that I think it's we Jews speak that which we Jews know from Scripture. Why don't you, Nicodemus? How did you miss this? We speak that which we know and bear witness. Again, we bear witness of that which we have seen. We know perfect tense. We have seen perfect tense. These are things that have been going on for a long time, and we know them today, Nicodemus. What happened to you? Somebody let you skip the third grade. Or maybe elementary school altogether. Somehow you didn't get this in your training. How are you the teacher of Israel? And then he ultimately lets him know in verse 11, you do not receive our witness. 
You don't receive the witness of the prophets. All the Jews that went before you, the truths that were laid out there, including me as I share it with you now. But I thought Nicodemus was dead. How could he receive anything if Calvinism is correct? I'm kind of picking on the T in total depravity. You understand the danger with this? This is where people are sitting. They, they don't sit around. They still share the gospel if they're a Calvinist. They just don't have any idea of which one of you is elect. So I've got to hit everybody and let God. Why, do, why share the gospel at all? Who's going to save them? Not me. Not the word. They can't even understand the word. What's going to save them? The Holy Spirit causing them to be born again. The Holy Spirit giving them faith. The Holy Spirit saying, whether you like it or not, you're going to heaven for eternity. That's what it's teaching. You understand how widespread this is? I bet you I could take half the Bibles in this room and I could show you this teaching in your study Bible. If you have a study Bible. It's widespread. It's major leaders in the church. I look at it and I go, I don't understand. I don't understand why this is so prolific. Why nobody's challenging it. Why nobody's asking questions from Scripture. And now I think I really do understand. The church doesn't know the Word. Guess what Nicodemus had a problem with? He didn't know the Word. And he let himself get worked into a system where he thought he was a bigwig, that he was on his way, that God owed him salvation. He had earned it. And Jesus is lovingly presenting himself as Messiah, which is what he was, which is what John's all about, and he's hitting Nicodemus in chapter 3. Ruler of the Jews, top dog, male. Next chapter, female, bottom of the barrel, Gentile. Well, Samaritan woman, half-breed. Same Jesus, same message, same goal. It's to draw them to himself. It had nothing to do with your accomplishments. Nicodemus hadn't figured that out yet. So he says to him in verse 12, if I told you earthly things, and that if is a first-class condition, sorry, I'm sharing some of this for some people that may be watching online. He says, the idea of a first-class condition, you can translate the if more like a since. Since I told you earthly things about birth, about the wind, about the need to be born again, he said um, in an earthly way, he says, and you do not believe, Nicodemus, who can understand me, You've chosen not to place your faith in this. How shall you believe, Nicodemus, place your faith in, if I tell you heavenly things? The if, the second if, third class condition. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The third class is more probable, more hypothetical. Why is that? Because at this point in time, if you were Nicodemus, what would you do? What did a lot of other people do around Jesus? Crucify him! Crucify him. We have nothing to do with him. Let his blood be upon our children. Foolish statement from a Jew. They rejected it. This is hypothetical here because Nicodemus could have said, I'm done. This is worthless. This is stupid. I have my belief system and what I'm going to stick to. That's why it's hypothetical. But the first one's not. He says, I told you the earthly things. That has a definite article on it. He said, but how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? If we go on with this conversation, Nicodemus, uh, we got a problem. And it's not that the Holy Spirit isn't forcing himself on him. 
is that Nicodemus is having trouble processing this because he's able to. So he goes to verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. Who descended from heaven? Jesus. What do we call that? The incarnation. When he took on flesh, virgin birth, he descended from heaven. No one's been in, ascended to heaven, been spiritually in that process, and still alive. Who has, um, but he who has descended, the one who's coming down, even the Son of Man. And we don't have time to go into all of that. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent. Oh, I'm sorry, I left out the second part. Oh, no, and I'm, 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 I got ahead of myself here. As Moses lifted up the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, that section there, if you want to look it up, Numbers 21, 4 to 9, as Moses lifted up the, ser- the bronze serpent in the wilderness, because they had disobeyed, they were rebellious, God sent snakes among them, and they were biting him. So he goes, here's your option. Here's what will keep you from dying. I wish I had one of those in Texas. <laughs> Floating down the river in New Braunfels with probably at least 100 copper mouths. Swimming across, sitting on the shores. I need a pole. I need a bronze serpent. And I'd have it right in front of my face. I'd be staring at it the whole time. I did not enjoy that trip on inner tubes. But as he's promising this to them, he says, as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, that real thing that told people, the only way you can be delivered here is by faith. It's not by a doctor. It's not by having a gun and shooting the snakes when they get close to you. They're going to bite you. You have blown it. I'm coming in and judging the nation of Israel at this point as they're wandering through the wilderness. You got one option. Look to the pole. And many of them would have said, that's a stupid idea. Pull out something here. Look to my pen and you shall be healed. Do you understand that is being taught on TV across our country? I'll send you a rag, put it on you, it will heal you. Foolish. And yet millions of people are making some people very rich and getting nowhere except losing their finances. And he's trying to tell them here, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the same way, it's foolishness. The teaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2. But it's what we share. Because those who genuinely believe that it's God who provides your salvation is doing the same thing with his own Son, the Son of Man. That's another whole study you can do. Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary helps a lot with that. He says that whoever believes, that whoever the Holy Spirit forces into salvation. Is that what it says? No. Whoever, wide open, literally pasha, everyone who believes, looking to Jesus, may in him have eternal life. And again he says may have. Why is it hypothetical? Why is it a subjunctive? Because it's up to you. God leaves it up to you, just like he's going to leave it up to millions upon millions that you can't even count, like the sand of the sea, who are going to see Jesus Christ reigning on earth with righteousness and peace. The devil is locked up for a thousand years, and they hate him. The first chance they get, they rebel against him. They don't want it. It's not a matter of being mentally dead. It's a matter of being defiant and refusing to repent. So, as I close this off, That's the message there. He makes that very common statement. 
for God, and this is the four here explaining it, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he hung him up on a pole, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an eternal life. It's up to you. He went to the cross in order that whoever, everyone, pas ha again, believes. It's a participle. It's a present tense. Everyone believing in him should not perish. Subjunctive. It's up to you. But Allah, contrast, have eternal life. Subjunctive. It's up to you. It's possible, but it's not God forcing it on you. Is that, have I made that point clear today? It's coming right out of John over and over and over. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that, in order that, a hina, I mean a, a hina clause again, in order that the world should be saved through him. Who's going to get saved? The world. He just said that up above there, that whosoever. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. How do you get saved? By you placing your faith in Christ. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because that's the only option for you. He who won't look at the pole when Christ is lifted up on it, who will not take the death of Christ to be their, their salvation. There's nothing else. There's no longer remains anything for sin. And then he closes off here. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Were is in perfect tense. Continually evil in the past. For everyone in verse 20 who does evil hates the light. I thought they were dead. No, no. They hate the light. They understand the light. They see the light. They hate it. And they do not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. Subjunctive. That's why they're avoiding Christ. That's why they avoid church. That's why they avoid, avoid you opening a Bible. Avoid you sharing your, your testimony. They just avoid. They want nothing to do with any of that. It's convicting. And the last verse, but he who practices the truth, present participle, comes to the light. The one who is genuine, the one who is real, the one who is sincere, comes to the light, the pole lifted up, in order that his deeds may be manifested, may be made visible, subjunctive, as having been wrought in God. And I, had, I have so many other verses, so many other things that I could share with you, but I'm just trying to make a point out of a very common passage that, that's one of the primary things that Calvinism will teach you right up front. It doesn't work. But, 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 so-and-so wrote a book and it was really, really convincing. Show me the book. I'll sit down with you. I may have some of them. I've marked them all up. One book I marked every single page using, practically using up my, the ink in my pens. Every page, line after line after line. Pointing out one thing all through it. Not from Scripture. If you don't know the Bible, you're not going to know if it's true to the Word or not. What's it going to cost you to read your Bible? My favorite TV show? My favorite sport? I'll throw out a zinger just to finish off, and I know I'm over time. You will get up early to go shopping. I'm talking about Black, what do they call Black Friday? Four o'clock in the morning. And then they said, wow, this keep open all night. You won't even go to bed. And I'm not pointing at any individual because I don't know, and I've never been there doing those. I avoid Shopping malls, period, anyway. Especially when they make you wear a mask. But, but you, you'll get up 4 o'clock in the morning and go fishing. Why? I could win to dozens of things that people will get up for. You get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go to work. 
Well, that's because my boss requires it. What does God require of us? To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. I think that includes the clock, my money, my energies. You read the Psalms and look what David did. It's late at night and early in the morning. You think he felt like getting out of bed every time? Nope. God will meet you there. He loves it. Read your Bibles and watch out for Calvinism. Let's pray.